You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. All right, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? It's great to see you all. So as uh, Pastor Brad mentioned earlier today, we have finally reached the conclusion to our sermon series through 1 Corinthians, United in Christ. I know that I've learned a lot, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit has brought conviction and encouragement to me, to my heart and my soul throughout this series, and I pray that it has, has been the same for you as, as we've gone through it. One of the prominent themes, of course, is based on the title, is that as Christians we are united in Christ. And um, I want to highlight that this morning as we conclude our sermon series and um, the fact that we've been learning that unity is not uniformity, but that it's, it's quite the opposite, right? That, that we're all designed and, and called to be unique individuals with unique backgrounds and ages and preferences and spiritual gifts and, and roles, all of us in, in different stages in our, in our journey of faith and, and our understanding, yet each one of us is significant to the body of Christ. And together, in one spirit, we're meant to cooperate and encourage one another in the faith so that we can, we can mature and be more effective as a united witness of God's love to the world. Of course, we've been learning what this looks like from a church that was divided, a church that was divided over many issues, uh, political, theological, moral, and, and practical. And, and this division was mostly due to a failure on their part to prioritize, instead of themselves and their own seeking motives, but the glory of God through loving and serving one another as equally important members of the body of Christ. And so from what we can tell by this letter, um, the church in Corinth at that time was a mess. The church in Corinth was, was a mess. And it's a reminder for us, first of all, that no church is perfect, right? No church is perfect. That every single church is, is made up of humans, all imperfect, uh, some saved and some unsaved, each person bringing a, a plethora of opinions and experiences and baggage right? And, and where even the saved are, are still works in progress, right? And so, of course, like in all families, sometimes church will get messy, like it was in Corinth. Sometimes there will be disagreements and disappointments and offenses, but it's how we handle them that defines who we truly follow and what's truly important to us, Right? Uh, the call of a Christian, then, as Paul teaches us throughout the letter, is to choose love and reconciliation over offense and division. That's easier said than done, right? Um, and Paul reminds us that this is God-like love. This is Christ-like love. It doesn't quit. It bears all things. It's patient and kind and hopeful and, and protective and rejoices in the truth. And it perseveres and it isn't, isn't easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Secondly, then, the messy church in, of Corinth is a reminder for us that since, again, no one has made it yet, not even your pastors, that means we need to support each other and help each other out as God does his work in us. This is one of the primary reasons we're called to function in community 
as Christians. We're not meant to be Christian by ourselves. We're meant to function as a community, as, 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 as a group, as a family, as, as, as the body of Christ, right? And 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Romans 14.19 also says, So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. So it's pretty clear, right? And, and this uh, mandate to, to support other believers and seek unity within the church is, is exactly what, what I feel Paul models and encourages the church in Corinth to practically live out as he concludes his letter to them in chapter 16. So let's, let's turn there now. 1 Corinthians 16, we're starting at verse 1, going all the way to verse 24. We're reading the whole thing this morning. So 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 24. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, Now, about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. And when I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you, because he is doing the Lord's work, just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he can come to me, because I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanas. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I am delighted to have Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore recognize such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so as is, is typical with, with letters of that day, the Apostle Paul, he, he's concluding this letter with some practical encouragements, some updates, some, some greetings. He, he writes that he and maybe Apollos or Timothy might visit them soon, and then he sends some greetings from other notable leaders like the, the ministry couple Aquila and Priscilla and, and the church that they're leading. And, and finally, he even ends the letter with a greeting which is written in his own hand as a confirmation for them that, that 
this letter was from him. And, and this was important because uh, it was common back then for letters to be written down by a scribe, uh, dictated to by, and, and then written down by a scribe. So this was most, most likely the case here. And so Paul's signing it at the end saying, yes, this is from me. This is my own writing. Um, so he's just confirming that. All in all, though, this, this conclu- concluding passage feels pretty down to earth, right? And, and in many ways, it can feel like one which can be easily glossed over. Like you're doing your Bible reading, you're like, okay, yeah, he said, yeah, grace be with you, and, and come Lord Jesus, which is Maranatha. And so that's the, the prayer and hope of all Christians, and yeah, okay, yeah, he's saying goodbye, okay, whatever, right? But I, I feel like we'd, we, we'd miss out on a lot if we did that. I actually feel like this, this passage is, in fact, a call to action for them, where, where he's both modeling and calling them to put into practice much of what he's just written to them. He, he doesn't want them to just take in the information from his letter, right? He wants them to actually live it out by the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and on that end, I think one of the, the greatest tragedies for us as Christians is when we do confuse information with transformation, and I think this happens a lot today, just in our culture. We spend a lot of time consuming information. Since we have an unlimited resource of it over the internet through, through podcasts, ebooks, recorded sermons, websites, YouTube, news articles, blogs, apps, and, and more, right? It's, it's unending. And, and so we often consume all of these things. We get all this information thinking that it's going to automatically create transformation in our lives, right? The more you know. Of course, it's good. Like learning and asking questions and all that is, is great and growing in our knowledge of God and, and his word is, is definitely important for our spiritual growth, as the Bible reminds us continually. But yet, it can also become a trap for us or, or have the opposite effect if, if it simply remains knowledge only and is never actually applied. This was happening in the church in Corinth. There, there were some in the church who seemed to know a lot more than others or who, who thought they did. Like, like they knew their theology and, and, had, and had lots of knowledge about God and they felt they had wisdom and, and that they understood concepts and doctrines concerning Jesus. But yet they were actually a bunch of jerks. Right? We're, we're told in, in chapter 8 that they'd become puffed up and arrogant. It says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right? They, become, they become puffed up and arrogant toward those who maybe weren't as smart or knowledgeable as them. And so while they may have viewed themselves as, as more mature than other believers because of how intelligent they were, the reality was they were some of the most immature believers in the church since their lives showed very little in the way of transformation. Again, being a Christian is about more than just knowing things about God and Jesus' teachings. It's about knowing him personally and being changed and formed by our knowledge of him in such a way that we can live it out and become like him. For we can know all things and have all understanding and all prophecies, yet without love, we're nothing. And again, love isn't an idea or a concept or just a feeling. It's something we do. It's something we do. As Paul writes in verse 14, which is a great summary, I think, for the whole letter to the, to the Corinthians, just, you know, four simple words. He could have just written these four simple words and, and be done with the letter. Do everything in love. If you're, writing, if you're writing notes, that's the note. Do everything in love. 
or as it says in James's epistle, faith without works is dead. And he also says, and the one who hears the word and doesn't do it deceives himself. <clears throat> in other words, the evidence of your belief system is not found in simply what you believe or what you know or how much you consume, but in the way you practice, integrate, and embody that belief into your everyday life. I, I often think of the, the, the Francis Chan example of when he says he, he, he asked his daughter to clean her room, and, and she responded to him saying, yes, Dad, I know what it means to clean my room. In fact, I know how I would go about cleaning my room. But yet she doesn't actually clean her room. His point is that it's, it's pretty pointless for her to know about cleaning her room and how to clean her room if she doesn't actually clean her room. You know, I, th- I think there are, are way too many Christians these days, and, and, and maybe you're one of them, who've gone to church for 5, 10, 20 years. They've, they've listened to solid sermons and gone to, gone to Bible studies and, and worship nights and been prayed for, yet their lives haven't really changed or, or have changed very little. Maybe they're still just as bitter or, or, or broken or selfish or hopeless or, or addicted or whatever as they were before. And, and to be blunt, I don't mean to offend, but that's probably no one's fault but their own. It means they haven't taken ownership. They've been given the information. They've been, they've been given the knowledge. They've been given the love and the opportunity to grow. But again, information by, by itself doesn't automatically change people. We, we can know all there is to know about Jesus and the Bible and not be changed. Even the demons know and shudder, as it says in James. So change comes when we, when we take ownership, when we, when we submit our lives to Jesus and allow his living word to take hold of us so that it can have its effect in us. And Jesus even tells his disciples, you are my friends if you obey my commandments. In other words, the evidence of their faith and and their genuine friendship with Jesus will be revealed in how their lives have changed to the point where they can do nothing but live for him. As theologian A.W. Tozer bluntly writes, the only true Christian is the practicing Christian. And and this, I feel, is, is... partly why Paul concludes his letter the way he does with with some very simple and practical examples and encouragements for the Corinthian Christians to begin to live out and and practice what he's just been teaching them. And and the best place to do that is within the church body. In fact, when when Christians say, oh, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, well, you can be saved, but you can't, you know, be a practicing Christian without the church. We need each other. So, in fact, throughout this passage, from what I see, I I see that he both demonstrates and encourages three specific things that they can start doing in order to actively demonstrate their love for each other and to promote health and unity within the church. So, 
three practical things that they can start doing in regards to what he's been teaching them. So we're going to go through those three things. And the first thing that he does here is, is he reminds them of their, their commitment, which was made with many other churches in the area and in Galatia, to, to raise money for the church in Jerusalem. So more specifically, he reminds them that, that each individual or family from the church was, was, was committed to bring an offering on the first day of each week, each in proportion to their own wages, so that they could eventually send it to the Christians in Jerusalem, who were most likely struggling at that time uh, due to a current drought or possibly from persecution, or even both at the same time. Uh, we don't know exactly, but they were struggling, and so they wanted to raise money and, and send it to them. And while we can certainly derive some application here about how we're to be good stewards of our money and to give proportion to our wages, I'm not going to go there today, so you can relax. I, I feel like the important thing for us to learn today is, is the positive effect that taking part in this act of charity will have for them. Right? For, for not only would this promote unity with other churches as they worked uh, together in raising funds, it's also going to promote and display racial unity among Jewish and Gentile Christians, since the church in Jerusalem would have been mostly Jewish converts, while the one in Corinth would have been mostly Greek. And so it's a powerful statement which reminds them that they're all part of the same family of God through Jesus Christ. But furthermore, it's also going to promote unity among themselves as a church body as they work together and they sacrifice together for a common goal. Because there's really nothing more unifying than working together, right, for, for a common cause. You know, when you work together for a common cause, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter what your political beliefs are or your opinions or whatever, right? You're all joining together for this one purpose, and you become unified in that one purpose, right? Uh, so whether it's something like serving together at, at the soup kitchen, which we did last Sunday, which is awesome, or, or worshiping together on a Sunday morning, or like in the passage, raising funds together for another ministry or charity. Um, just practical things that, that build unity as they work together. Because again, tangible unity isn't just, just an idea or a concept or something that automatically happens just because we're all in Christ. Yes, we're unified by Jesus, but we still need to act like it. And so, just like soldiers, how they might be unified by the country they serve, but, not, but they aren't truly unified until they, match, until they march together into battle. In other words, the unity we've been given is only tangibly realized when, when we're sacrificially and generously working side by side for the glory of God. Each one of us contributing whatever and, and wherever we can according to what God has given us. So that's the first thing that he does, just a really practical thing to, to build unity and love amongst the congregation. On, on that same note, the next thing Paul does in this passage is to instruct them to support and submit to one another as members of the body, especially to those who are actively bearing fruit and doing the Lord's work. Because, again, the truth is we, we need each other. As uh, Corey Tenboom once wrote, be united with other Christians. A wall with loose bricks is not good. The bricks must be cemented together. So Paul instructs them towards this camaraderie in, in actually three ways in this passage that I see. 
First of all, he himself shows his own uh, support to them. He models uh, what it looks like to support other people by expressing his love for them as well as his desire to visit and, and encourage them in person. But he doesn't want to just stop in for a little bit. He wants to actually spend time with them. Uh, and so he's showing them what it looks like to, to support and, and, and show love. Secondly, he reminds them to consistently greet one another with a holy kiss. And so turn to your neighbor. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, though, he, he tells them to, to greet one another with a holy kiss. And, and that's usually with the kiss on the cheek, right? And, and we should understand that this, this, this isn't just some common custom they, they did to greet each other. It actually had meaning. For the early Christians, the holy kiss was, was associ- associated with the peace and unity given by the Holy Spirit to the congregation. So that, that, that's what that was implying. Um, I see some people doing it, the kiss, and it's throwing me off here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Uh, I love that peace and unity going on. Uh, and, you know, if you think of the Corinthian church, you know, I dealt with, with all the, the division and arguments that they'd been having amongst each other about all these different issues that, you know, it's likely they probably weren't even in doing this. They weren't even greeting each other this way. And, and so Paul's saying, Start doing that again. Here, here's, here's a simple and practical way to remind yourselves and each other that, that you love and that you care for one another, right? Of, of course, in our culture, you know, unless you're in the third row there, we, we don't usually greet each other with a kiss like that. That's not really common for us. It was in the Mediterranean. But um, it, it would be weird for us. So then, so then it does fall on us to, to, to think of practical and, and intentional ways that we can demonstrate our, our support for one another and our, and our desire for peace amongst ourselves whenever we're together, whether that's, you know, giving hugs or, or speaking words of affirmation or praying for each other or sending an encouraging text or something saying, I'm thinking about you and I care about you or whatever it is, right? Like, we, we need to be intentional in doing these things. There's just these little things, right, but that carry deep meaning. And the third way he instructs them to support one another is when he, when he tells the Corinthian believers to, to acknowledge and encourage those among them who are doing good work for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 15 to 16, it says, Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. That means to serving everyone in the church, right? And, and then he says, I urge you, also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. And then a few verses later, he says, acknowledge such people. So basically, Paul's saying, hey, when you see members of the church who are, who are, who are genuinely and, and faithfully laboring in the Lord's work and, and producing fruit and, and serving others in the church, if, if you see that, those are the people that you need to, to prop up and, and, and support and encourage and get behind, right? And, and this could mean financially or, or through prayer or a kind word or, 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 or through coming alongside them and, and, and serving with them and learning from them or preferably all of the above, right? And, and doing this not only pr- promotes and produces unity and, and love among the body of Christ in a tangible way, but it also encourages humility, right? And, and the opportunity to count others as more significant than yourself, which is what Jesus did for us at the cross. 
And you might remember from earlier in this series that many of the Corinthians like to put themselves first. And so this would be a good reminder for them and for us to put others first, to serve the saints, to use the gifts we've been given not for ourselves but for the common good and for the building up of the whole body. And, right, that's, that's what it means to be the church. And one, one tangible way that I think we have an opportunity to, to do this ourselves right now is, is by, actually, two, two ways. Two ways. There's two ways we can do this right now. Uh, for example, uh, earlier Pastor Brad announced that the drills are moving this, this Wednesday, Wednesday evening. We have an opportunity to serve them and to support them and to work together. Those are, those are two points I've already made. Right? Work together and support them. We have an opportunity to do that. Another way we, we, can, we can tangibly do this is uh, by acknowledging and encouraging our missions team who will be heading to Poland this summer. I know Brad asked them to stand last week, but do you guys want to stand again? Missions team, stand up if you're, if you're here today. Awesome. Rachel's downstairs. Yeah. That, just clapping for them. That, that's what this is all about. Um, we can do more than clap for them, though, right? Um, we can tangibly see that they've, they've committed themselves to doing the work of the Lord, and therefore we have an opportunity to prop them up and support them and recognize them and encourage them by praying for them and even supporting them financially so that they can actually go and do this. So as a church body, let, let's commit to supporting them. Amen? Yeah. Um, it's exciting. All right, so... So far, we, we've seen Paul encouraging unity and, and, and love within the body of Christ through getting the church in Corinth to work together in generously and systematically collecting funds for the struggling church in Jerusalem, and also by encouraging them to practically and prayerfully support one another as members of the body of Christ. All right, following so far? The next thing Paul directs them to do in order to encourage unity and love within the church is to remind them to support their leaders, those who teach and preach the gospel to them. Now, for obvious reasons, this is an awkward point for me to preach on, uh, and it's also possible that this isn't a teaching that you've heard very often or at all, because again, it's awkward for pastors to talk about since it concerns them directly and it can give off the wrong impression that, you know, they're fishing for accolades or, or praise or, or guilt tripping or being manipulative or, or whatever, which in this case, I assure you, is not what's happening. Rather, the, the reason I'm going to talk about it today is, is because it's in the Bible, so it's important, and, and the truth is we need to recognize that this is an incredibly significant part of what it takes to see the body of Christ function in unity and love, and therefore effective in proclaiming Jesus to the world. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 10 to 11 again. And Paul says this to them. He says, If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you, because he is doing the Lord's work, just as I am. So let no one look down on him, Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I am expecting him with the brothers. So obviously, we can see here that the plan was for Paul's young pastor, protege, Timothy, 
to, to come and minister, them, minister to them for a while as he was making his way to Ephesus, where Paul currently was. And so Paul says, hey, make sure that he has nothing to fear while he's there and that you don't look down on him. Now, if we had a guest pastor come in to preach here, would I, would I have to say that? Make sure that you don't, you know, that this guest pastor has nothing to fear and that you don't look down on him. No, I, don't, I hope I wouldn't have to say that. But why would he have to say that to the Corinthians? Well, first of all, because the Corinthians had already shown that they liked to pick and choose whatever leaders they liked best and then discount the ones that they didn't like. And I think we do that. We do that these days, too, don't we? On the internet, we like pick the ones we like, and we're like, well, these ones are all good. These ones are good. Better than, better than my pastor, right? <laughs> and, and so this, this, this had become for them actually a major point of contention and division in the church. So this was a big problem. And, and since Timothy at that time was also still young, he's a very young pastor, and probably timid, that is in his personality, not in his faith, I'm sure Paul was, was worried for him, right? That, that, they would, that they would write him off or criticize him, just as many of them had already done to Paul himself because he wasn't as charismatic or as good of a speaker as Apollos was. It's also likely that many of them didn't have very teachable attitudes since, again, they, they'd become pretty arrogant in their own self-described knowledge and wisdom, which, to be honest, again, sounds like a lot of people these days as well. So Paul's trying to prevent uh, Timothy, a young pastor, from, from walking into an unsupportive and, and potentially discouraging environment by reminding the Corinthians to treat him as a worker of the gospel with respect and honor so that he can do the Lord's work in peace and, and without dread. Uh, Hebrews 13.7 says it this way, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It's pretty heavy. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So he's saying, you know, how can a church be healthy if, if the church doesn't support or get behind the very leaders who've committed to, to serving and ministering to them. Of course, you know, if there's an abusive leader in charge or a manipulative leader or something, that's a different story. We should, we should never obey blindly or, or without thought, right? But in regards to those leaders who are genuinely serving and, and preaching the gospel and teaching the, the word of God with honesty and integrity who, who genuinely want to see people grow in their faith and their relationship with Jesus and who take that burden of being held accountable for the souls of those they lead to heart, the truth is that they need to be supported. They need to be loved by those very same souls that they are leading. Or inevitably, as evidence has shown, they'll eventually run dry. Now, most of you might not know this, but the average tenure of a pastor in America these days is five to seven years. That's it. Five to seven years. 
burnout and even suicides among pastors have also increased exponentially over the past decade. These stats are, are alarming and staggering and, and saddening, right? And um, as I've read articles about the various reasons for this, and, and some is that, you know, pastors can get caught up in the, in the culture of, of hurry and, and, and performance, and they, and they burn out. They don't take enough rest. It's one of the problems. But um, I think one of the biggest ones, and the logical conclusion I found, is that one of, one of the biggest reasons for pastors quitting or, or changing careers after such short tenures comes down to the fact that the Western church and its consumer culture has largely forgotten or has put aside the biblical mandate which calls church members to intentionally and prayerfully support and minister to their pastors and to cultivate atmospheres where they can lead in joy. Instead, though, what many leaders, pastors, and, and even their spouses, and I'm including spouses because they carry the, the burden of the past of their, of their husbands or wives too, right? Right? What they're facing these days from their congregants is often the opposite of what the Bible tells us, right? Instead, they're facing increased criticism, suspicion of leadership, unteachable attitudes, complaints and offense, being held to unattainable expectations, consuming congregants and church shoppers that are just looking to be impressed, low commitment levels, being unfairly compared to pastors on the internet, being sucked into political divisions they didn't sign up for, volunteer shortages, people leaving the church in offense if the pastor makes one mistake, and the list goes on. How can a pastor lead without dread or with joy and effectiveness in that kind of atmosphere? They, they can't. They can't lead people who refuse to be led. Right? And so, um, speaking from experience, and the, and the next thing I'm going to say, one, one thing we can't forget is that church leaders, pastors, and elders, and again, their spouses, they're human too. Right? They, they're not superhuman. They're not all-knowing like God. And like everyone else, they're also on a journey of faith, and they're also being sanctified in their own lives. And they have feelings and, and, and struggles and can also get discouraged and hurt and burnt out, especially with the, the burden of people's souls on their hearts. And so, yeah, they, they also need encouragement. They need support. They need spiritual nourishment. We get to see a really awesome example of what this looks like in our passage from this morning when Paul mentions that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, those are fun names to say, who, they're, they're members of the church in Corinth, and in, in fact, they're the first to be saved. They, they come and visit Paul, probably to bring the church's report to, to him, but also with, with a desire to minister to him as their leader. And, and in response to this, Paul says, they brought refreshing to his spirit. They brought refreshing to his spirit. You see that the church isn't just a one-way street, right? And so how can the church support their pastors and their spouses in a way that refreshes their spirit so that they can serve with joy and, and not with dread or discouragement? 
Well, first of all, by having grace and patience with them. Also by having teachable postures. By serving alongside them as they serve the church. By refusing to give in to the temptations to complain or grumble about petty issues. By praying for them daily. By showing up consistently. By fellowshipping with them. By encouraging them. And and sharing praise reports with them so they know that the, the Spirit of God is working in the ministry. A lot of the time, all pastors ever hear is, this, is the problems that people have, which is part of the job. That's great. But they also need to hear the good stuff, what God is doing in the, in, in the lives of the people. And honestly, nothing brings a pastor more joy than, than to see the members of the local body of Christ getting along with each other in love, serving each other wherever the need arises, supporting and building each other up in the faith, quickly forgiving each other when wrongs occur, and most of all, when they work together to boldly advance the gospel. Because that's what it's all about. So it's no wonder that you know, Paul's final encouragement to the church is to do just that. Right? 1 Corinthians 16, 13-14. He says, Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know, that's, that's what's going to be encouraging for him, for, for, for him to see that in them, right? And then he says at the end, may the grace of Jesus be with you, right? And, and we could, you know, play that off as just a greeting at the end. But no, this, this is integral. May the grace of Jesus be with you. Because the, the truth is we can do none of this without Jesus, this isn't in our own strength that we build unity and support one another and, and encourage one another and pray for one another and, and, and all these things. We need him, and it's all about him and for him. And so again, as we lean on him, as we look to Jesus, for the church body to be healthy and function properly as a unified body for the glory of God and as lights of Christ, we need to be working together in generosity and mission. We need to be supporting one another in our needs and our callings as members of the church. And we also need to be supporting our church leaders as they minister. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 18 actually sums this up well. And there's nothing like summing up uh, uh, 1 Corinthians with a passage from 1 Thessalonians. Um, we could have just read this one, I guess. Would have been just a one-week series. But anyways, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 18 says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I'd actually encourage you to read the, the whole passage, chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians, get the full picture, but this is, this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you. The, the glorious truth is that through Jesus... We have been united together 
And, and, so, and God's will for us and the power of his Holy Spirit is to step into that unity and to grow in it so that we can live out the victorious life and eternal purpose which Jesus has won for us at the cross. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13 says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. In conclusion, then, our, our, our prayer is this, that we as a church would receive this truth, but not as information only, right? But that this knowledge of of God's will for us would be written on our hearts, that it would change us and, and continually transform us, that we would pursue this unity together and seek to build one another up in love so that we at the gate can ever more effectively shine the love and light of Christ to the world.